you want a title for today's message, I've called it The Miracle of Sight. And we're going to go ahead and read from verses 1 through 26. We've already done verses 1 through 10. That's what we looked at last week in Jesus feeding the 4,000. But by way of context, I want us to read from verse 1 and we'll go through to the end of verse 26. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spat on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they are like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was clearly restored, and he saw everything. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way it speaks to our souls, for the way it pursues us, for the way it puts its arms around us. Well, Lord, would you open our eyes today to see the beauty of this miracle. 
Open our eyes to comprehend what you are showing us here. Lord, have your way amongst us in your name. Amen. You know, once upon a time, in my early years, I used to love playing drums, and I dreamt of doing that for a living. In fact, that's all I wanted to do. I wanted to go to the Percussion Institute of Technology in Los Angeles and become a professional drummer. And as a means to that end, and one of the things I did was I used to play in a lot of musicals, a lot of shows. So I played in Carousel, uh, Viva Mexico, and Bugsy Malone. And one of the things, I, I loved it, because as a drummer, you were right into the stage, you were right at the back, but you could, you could hear this amazing orchestra night after night after night, and just to play with musicians that good was a real treat. And I remember one of the things that the conductor would really build into us as we prepared for the musical time and time again was the importance of the reprise. The importance of the reprise. You see, the reprise is a tune or a melody line that is played very early on in a musical, but then is played again and again at different points in the musical to break it up, but also to emphasize different parts in the play and in the musical that's taking place. And for the conductor, he wanted to make sure you're nailing that. We've got to get this bit right. This has got to sound loud and clear to the audience so they understand what's going on in the story. And so we worked hard on the reprise, given its significance and its importance. Well, I submit to you this morning that if Mark's gospel was a musical, then what we'd have here, I believe, in verses 11 through 26 of chapter 8, is the reprise. The often repeated tune of blindness, and in particularly the often repeated tune of the spiritual blindness of the disciples which is now being played loud and clearly to us by the orchestra. See, this is a tune that we've heard before. We were actually introduced to it way back in chapter 3 when Jesus calms the storm. You remember the story? They're all in the boat. The boys are in the boat. Jesus is with them in the boat. The boat is in an incredible storm. These burly disciples that used to be fishermen are actually freaking out. They think they're going to die in the midst of the storm. And yet Jesus is asleep. So they wake him up and effectively say, what are you doing? We're about to die here in this storm. And he sits up from his bed and he simply says to the storm, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was calm. Now the disciples responded then by saying this. They said, who then is this? that even the wind and sea obey him. Who is this? They've just sat in a boat with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's just stood up and said to a storm to be quiet, and it was quiet, and that they can't figure out who he is. They have no idea who he is because they're blind to him at this point. They just can't work it out. We see it again in chapter 6 when Jesus feeds the 5,000. 5,000 men plus women and children, probably nine to 12,000 people. They're getting hungry. Jesus wants to feed them. So the disciples do a bit of a look around. One guy's lunchbox has five loaves of bread and two fish. Jesus prays over it. It's multiplied. Everybody eats to their fill. They are satisfied. They are abundantly blessed. There are 12 baskets left over. And at the end of that miracle, we're told immediately after the miracle, that the disciples get stuck once again in a storm. Jesus comes walking on water towards them in the storm. They are terrified. They are astounded. And they still have no clue who he is. No idea who this one is. 
In chapter 6, verse 52, it says, For they did not understand about the loaves, because their hearts were hardened. They were blind. They've seen Jesus already do some incredible miracles. He's walking on the water towards them in the midst of a storm. And their response is, who is this? They can't figure it out. They're blind. And in chapter 8, in the immediate aftermath of the miraculous feeding of the 4,000, another incredible moment where Jesus takes a few loaves and a few fish and feeds the masses. Mark again draws our attention to the blindness of the disciples and their inability to correctly perceive who the heck Jesus of Nazareth is. And this reprise of the spiritual blindness of the disciples is once again played by the orchestra to us loud and clear. See, please notice in these verses from 11 through 26, everybody is blind. That's the key. That's the link between all these texts. Mark begins by drawing our attention to the blindness of the Pharisees. He then draws our attention to the blindness of the disciples. And then finally, he introduces us to the blindness of one certain man. This reprise, this theme tune of the Gospel of Mark is being played by the orchestra. Once again, it has been played loud and clear to our ears. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason why Mark wants to strike up the orchestra and play it to the crowds at this point. And it's because this theme of blindness was not only important and relevant to the disciples. This theme of blindness is also important and relevant to each of us as well. This isn't just to tell us what happened to the disciples, how they ended up seeing that Jesus was the Christ. He's rehearsing with us our story as well. Or explaining to us what our story needs to be. If we're ever going to follow suit with them. And it's an incredible story then when you see that that's what it's doing. So I have three points this morning. We're literally just going to follow the storyline of the text. Looking at the blind people. And so number one, the blindness of the Pharisees. The blindness of the religious leaders of the day. See it doesn't take long after returning from Gentile territory for the Pharisees to find Jesus. He's just got on the boat on the way to Dalmanatha. He's coming back into Jewish territory, and as he steps off the boat, who is greeting him? The Pharisees. And it doesn't take long for them to want a piece of him again. They're not coming to greet him, saying, oh, how, how, how did he go? No, they're coming to have a piece of Jesus. Once again, their historic and increasing hostility towards him is immediately obvious once again. So we read this in verse 11. The Pharisees came... And began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. So Jesus gets off the boat. The Pharisees are there to greet him. And immediately they want to argue with him. They got a few things to share with him. They remember just a little while before when they were going toe-to-toe with him about what really defiles a person. Well, they've moved on from that. They've got a few other things now they want to share with him. And they want to argue with him. And ultimately, they want to seek a sign from him, a sign from heaven. They want a celestial phenomenon, ultimately. Why? To test him. Now, that word test is very important. It's only used four times in the Gospel of Mark. The first time we hear it is when Satan tests Jesus. 
What we have here is not a group of men who are sincere seekers towards the Saviour. They don't sincerely say to him, hey, could you give us a sign just so we really know that you're the Christ so we can follow you? No, they're not sincere. They are insincere. They hate him. They hate everything that the Savior stands for. We already know by now in the story that the Pharisees and the scribes want Jesus killed. They want to see him removed from the planet. He is a threat to them. And so they're seeking a sign so that they can either ridicule him if he doesn't give it to them. And if he does give it to them, they can say to the crowd, See, this is again the work of the devil. Look. He's not God. Look at him. This is the works of devil. This is the, his allegiance with Satan once again coming to the fore. And Jesus' response in verse 12, where he opens his heart to them. It says, And he sighed deeply in his spirit. I said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Notice the Savior deeply sighed. Why is that? Because he's gutted. He loves them, actually. He loves the Pharisees. That's why he's seeking to help them come to their senses. That's why he's going toe-to-toe with them at different times. Because he loves them. He wants them to realize, you're wrong. You cannot get to heaven by just doing everything right. That will not be enough. He loves these men. He's seeking to win their hearts. But as soon as he steps off the boat, he realizes they're blind. And they just, it isn't just that they can't see. They're hardened in their blindness and stand in opposition to him. So he sighs because he's gutted. And yet he's not willing to be manipulated by them. He's not a performance act in a circus. He's not willing to just play their game so that once again they can throw him under the bus and show everybody how this is clearly Satan. So in verse 13, I think what we have is one of the saddest verses actually in the Gospel of Mark. As we read these words, And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. See, in the way this is written, what Mark is trying to help us see is that this was an abrupt departure. He's in effect done with them now. He's tried to help them see. He's revealed through his miracles who he is. He's told them who he is. But they are hardened in their blindness. And so we have in verse 13 a loud and sobering statement of how the Savior is going to respond to them now. He's leaving them. So he gets in the boat and abruptly departs because they are blind and they are settled in their blindness in a hardened way. David Garland says it this way. He says, Jesus will offer this generation no noisy sign from heaven, but only the wind whistling through an empty tomb after his crucifixion. Jesus isn't going to perform to these Pharisees in this moment. He's going to leave them. They will have a chance, though, because there will be the wind whistling through the empty tomb as he rises from the dead. But there will be no sign for them on this day. Because they're blind. And they are hardened in their settled blindness. That's not the only blindness we see in this story. Number two, 
We also see the blindness of the disciples. The blindness of the Pharisees, verses 11 through 13, and then the blindness of the disciples, verses 14 through 21. See, the blindness of the disciples doesn't express itself in hostility and opposition to Jesus like that which we see in the Pharisees. It's not the same. These men are following the Son of God, having been called by him. Jesus has, in fact, called each of these men to him, and they've freely, by their own will, given everything up to follow him. And yet they're still blind. They still don't now see who he is. They don't get it. They have no clue at this moment who Jesus of Nazareth really is. And it would appear in their abrupt departure from the Pharisees in verse 13 that they have had a sincere and deep issue. They have forgotten to pack enough bread for the journey. It's rather humorous, really. Read verse 14. It says, Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. Now you've got to imagine, these men are young men. They're probably between about 18 and 21, okay? There's 12 of them. They're gathered round. I can just imagine the conversation uh, guys, one loaf. <laughs> you know what I mean? 13 miles, one loaf. And you have to understand, they've been on boat journeys with Jesus before. And those boat journeys never end well. You know what I'm saying? They've been through a number of storms with Jesus. They know the way this tends to play out. Jesus tells us that, hey guys, you're looking tired. Let's go over to the other side for a rest. Yeah, we've heard it before. We get a storm on the way and then we get there. People come to you and we're going to be serving them all day. And so these disciples are quite clearly anxious that, uh, guys, I remember the seven large baskets that were left over. Which idiot just picked up one loaf for us today? (laughs) There is anxiety going on amongst the disciples in this moment. And yet Jesus is very aware of what's just occurred with the Pharisees. So this is a discipleship moment. They're in the boat. They're on the way to somewhere. And Jesus wants to disciple his disciples. And around six to nine months from now, Jesus would leave his disciples through death and resurrection and ascension. He needs to train them. And so he seizes this moment with his disciples to caution them. It says this in verse 15, And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware the leaving of the Pharisees and the leaving of Herod. Jesus jumps in on this moment. He interrupts this moment to say, guys, take a seat a moment. I need to caution you of something really important. I need to caution you away from the leaving of Herod and the leaving of the Pharisees. See, the Pharisees and Herod don't have a lot in common. There isn't much that they share in common. Herod is one side of the coin, the Pharisees are the other. And yet they do share some things in common. Both of these parties share an unbelief in relation to Jesus. They do not believe that he is the Christ or the Son of God. They both share an opposition to Jesus. Ultimately, they want him dead. And in the meantime, they both share an ongoing desire for Jesus to do signs for them. Herod, so that he can be entertained by this, by this spectacle that is taking place, the Pharisees, so they can ridicule him and throw him under the bus. So they don't share much in common, 
But what they do share in common is an unbelief and an opposition and an ongoing desire for Jesus to perform for them. And Mark refers to this as leaven. Jesus refers to this as leaven. And the word leaven would be a reference in the Jewish world to corruption. So a little leaven ruins the bread. It can corrupt what you're trying to make. In the Jewish world, it would be understood that what Jesus is saying here is, beware, guard your hearts from the corruption that can come from Herod and the Pharisees. Guard yourself from the corruption that comes from their unbelief, that comes from their opposition, that comes from their ongoing desire for Jesus to do signs to them. Men, guard your hearts from this leaving, this corruption. It's a very sincere moment from the Saviour, a very purposeful moment from the Saviour, a very direct moment from the Saviour. Well, the boys in the boat just ain't getting it. Because this is how they respond to that dramatic moment. In verse 16, it says, And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. I mean, it is insane. Jesus has just said, Hey, guys, just, just put the bread down a minute. There's something I need to talk to you about. Guard your hearts. Guard yourself from the leaven that comes from the Pharisees and Herod. Do not be corrupted by them. This is what happens to the disciples. Straight through their ears, straight out the other side. Finished, Jesus? Yes, finished. Right, which idiot didn't pack the bread? That's what's going on. They, don't, they haven't heard a word that Jesus has just said. They're not really interested in what Jesus has said because what they're disturbed about is somebody only packed one loaf. Mark is not painting a very favorable picture of the disciples here because he wants us to know the reality of what was happening with the disciples. And it's hard to believe, isn't it? Jesus has just sought to caution them from the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod, and yet in response... They begin to argue about a loaf of bread. Why? What is it that Mark wants us to see? Well, he wants us to see that the disciples at this point were clueless. They simply didn't understand who they really had in the boat with them. They didn't understand who this Jesus of Nazareth really was. And so when he spoke to them at different times, they just didn't get it. They had no idea. So finished? Okay, great. Who didn't pack the rolls? You know, that's more important to them. That's more of an issue to them than what exactly Jesus is saying to them. And so in verses 17 through 21, Jesus skillfully and passionately and purposefully seeks then to gently confront these disciples about their spiritual condition, about the blindness of their hearts. And he begins to ask them then a series of well-considered and sobering questions. This is what he asked them in verse 17 and 18. And Jesus, aware of this, aware that they still haven't got a clue, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? I mean, these disciples by now have seen so much. I mean, just consider their stories. 
They were there when Jesus stilled the storm. They were there when Jesus had been rebuking demons left, right and centre. They were there when the paralysed guy gets dropped through a roof and gets dramatically healed by the Saviour. They were there when the, blind, when the deaf man gets healed and he starts to hear and he starts to speak out. They've seen all these things. And so Jesus is trying to say, guys, do you not get it? Have you not bottomed out yet who I am? He then takes them in verses 19 and 20 to the last two major miracles that he does. Namely the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. And he says, guys, just think with me in a moment then. You remember the feeding of the 5,000? You were there, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How many baskets did you collect in at the end? Oh, well, 12 and the 5,000. Okay. So do you remember what we had at the start? Like, not a lot. And I was multiplying it out, and you had the joy and the privilege of handing it out and seeing the people's faces as you handed out the bread. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, we remember that. And what about the 4,000? Do you remember when again you brought the bread and the fish to me and there was barely anything and I multiplied it out and you had the joy of handing it out and then you collected seven huge man-sized baskets at the end of leftovers? Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Do you not see? No, they don't. I mean, how hilarious... They are arguing and showing grave concern that their bellies are getting a little empty and they only have one loaf of bread. And sitting on the other side of the, of the boat is the Savior who feeds 5,000 and 4,000 by multiplying bread left, right and center. Yet they're freaking out over here. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And the Savior over here is like, have you not just seen what I've done? Mark is trying to help us see this is ludicrous. But he's also trying to help us see they do not get it. So he says in verse 21, And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? And the answer was, No. No one has declared him yet to be the Christ. They don't get it. They're blind. They can't see it. They've already seen and heard so much over the last two and a half years walking with Jesus day after day after day, but they don't get it. And as you put the brakes on a moment after verse 21, you begin to wonder, how are they ever going to see it? How are they ever, ever, having walked with Jesus for two and a half years? You know, sometimes you encounter people and they say, if I just saw a miracle, I'd truly believe. No, you wouldn't. You just wouldn't, because they didn't back then either. People didn't. It's not going to work just to see a miracle. That will not be enough for you. It wasn't enough for the disciples. They were walking with him for two and a half years, day after day after day, saw him perform many miracles, and they just don't get it. You begin to wonder, what hope is there for these disciples? What is it going to take for these disciples to realize who he is? How are they ever going to get to do that? What hope is there in the universe that they might begin to see? That's the question Mark wants us to be having in our minds. And then in verses 22 through 26, he introduces us to an 
illustrative miracle. As he introduces us to number three, the blindness of the man in Bethsaida. See, this miracle was simply huge and vastly significant for the disciples. This was massive for them. And this miracle was simply huge and vastly significant then for us. Because this miracle, this particular miracle is strategically and purposely placed for us here by Mark to show us this one thing. That true sight always takes a miracle. That to truly see him always, always, always takes a miracle. The only way these disciples, having walked with Jesus for two and a half years and still been blind, the only way that they're going to see, you're the Christ. It's going to take a miracle. It's going to take something huge. It's going to take something vast in their lives. And when you see that that is really what is going on, what a wonderful illustrative miracle verse 22 through 26 is. It's a great miracle by itself, but it has greater purpose and significance in the context of the story. To help us see that true sight always takes a miracle. And what a miracle this one in the flesh really is. It begins with the Savior's compassion. Look at verse 22. It says, And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. You know, that is beautiful compassion. Just like in chapter 7, verse 33, when he heals the deaf man and the man with a speech impediment, he takes him by the hand and he leads him by himself. He, he doesn't want this to be a public spectacle. Just yesterday I was playing soccer for Asquith over 35, as I could do every week. And there we're 28 minutes in the game. I'm a defender. So I go running up to a guy. One of the other guys cuts in front of me. The guy breaks his ankle. Full on breaks his ankle. I mean, he is howling on the floor. He's screaming. He's crying. It's like, oh, this is, this is bad. I felt slightly sick. And everybody felt slightly sick. But here's what we all did. We went rushing in to have a look. Because that's what you do. Everybody went rushing in. You're like, oh my, oh my gosh, look at this. Oh, I can't look. Oh, I can. You know, that's what everybody was doing. There's just something in us that we get drawn to things like that when it happens. Jesus knows that. So he takes this blind man and says, you know what? You're not going to be a public spectacle for them. So come with me. He takes him out of the village. He wants some privacy with this man. Because he wants to do something special for this man. But he doesn't want this man to be a performance for everybody. So in compassion, he takes him out of the village and then he does this to him. And when he had spat on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. You know, Jesus' actions in this moment do seem a little peculiar to us, do they not? As he spits on the man's eyes. That's the type of thing I tell my six-year-old boy off for. You know, spitting on people is not a good thing. And yet to Jesus and this man, this man fully gets what Jesus is doing. 
Just like the deaf man and the man with a speech impediment in chapter 7. He's deaf. So Jesus puts his fingers in his ears because he wants to let him know, hey, I'm going to do something here. And he spits on his hand and puts it on his tongue because he wants this man to know, I'm going to do something in your tongue at the moment. He does the same to this man as he spits in his eyes and holds his eyes because he wants this man to know, I'm going to do something with your eyes. Seems strange to us, but to this man it wasn't strange. He was blind and he was desperate. And oh my, how incredible this must have been for this man in this moment. He's clearly seen before because he knows what men look like and he knows what trees look like. But at some point in his life, he has gone blind. Imagine how difficult it would be to be blind. If you've ever been in pitch blackness, you will know it's horrible. But imagine living your whole life that way for year after year after year. And then your friends take you by the hand because there's this man in town that can heal people. And so they take you by the hand and they take you to this healer. And clearly you've got this healer's attention because he's now taking you by the hand and taking you out of the village. And he puts his hands on his eyes. And he says, hey, open your eyes. And and this man begins to open his eyes and he realizes, man, I can see. I can see. And, you know, the men, well, they look like trees. You know, I can't fully work it out, but I can see this is amazing. And Jesus says, hey, we're not done yet. You know, you close your eyes again. He closes his eyes again and he puts his hands on his eyes again. He says, hey, now open them up. And this man opens them up. And this man that was blind can now see. Imagine the exhilaration that that would be. You you were blind and yet now you can see. You can see clearly. You can see your family again. You can see your wife again. You can see your friends again. You can see the tears in their eyes as they are applauding the Savior in this moment, realizing all that has taken place. Imagine the exhilaration of leaving that moment, knowing that you had to be led into that moment because you were blind, but now you leave of your own free will, seeing everything that is in front of you. Imagine the gratitude you would have to the Savior, to the healer, having just opened your eyes and effectively then changed your life. This would be an exhilarating moment for this man. Even on the face of it, this is an incredible miracle that would have changed lives. And it is as you realize the strategic and purposeful placement of this miracle that I think this miracle really begins to dazzle. Because it wasn't performed just on the cuff by Jesus. Because, oh, there's a blind man, let's give it a go. It is performed by Jesus to show the disciples and indeed us what it's going to take for anybody to proclaim Jesus as the Son of God and as the Christ. It's going to take a miracle. The only way the disciples are going to see that He is the Christ is going to take a miracle. The only way any one of us as Gentiles are going to see that Jesus is the Christ is going to take a miracle. A miracle just like that of this blind man in Bethsaida. Well, for these disciples, this miracle is just about to begin. In verses 27 through 30, as we'll see next week, Jesus asks them as he's walking along with them, 
Who do people say that I am? And they tell him different things. And then he says, but who do you say I am? And for the first time in the book, Peter says, Jesus, you're the Christ. In a miracle of grace, his eyes are opened. In a miracle akin to the blind man in Bethsaida, this man, Peter, in a moment sees through divine revelation, his eyes are opened and he realizes, you're the Christ. You're the King. You're the one we've been waiting for. Jesus, you are the Christ. Mark is building us up to that point, the midpoint of the Gospel of Mark, the climactic midpoint of the Gospel of Mark, as Peter declares Jesus to be the Christ. But it's all prepared for as we see the blindness of the Pharisees, the blindness of the disciples, and then this blind man in Bethsaida getting his eyes opened. Mark's leading us across the path to help us see the true sight always takes a miracle. And yet as the sun goes down on this text, this text only concludes, I believe, it only concludes its work when its readers, namely us, realize that we are in these stories as well. That's why Mark is placing it here. Because he wants us to see our predicament and our condition And the reality is who we are outside of this miracle of sight as well. He wants us to see that their story is our story. And so within conclusion then, how should we respond? How should we respond to this incredible miracle? Well, my friends, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour... You haven't put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior. Most likely because you haven't really seen that he's the Christ, the Son of God. And even if you have, it's words, it's just mental assent. It's just words that, that come off your tongue. Oh yeah, I think he's, I think he's God. <laughs> that isn't spiritual sight. That's just academic sight. When we see it spiritually and we perceive him to be really the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, it is life-changing a moment. Because our hearts then begin to want for nothing else apart from Him as our King. It changes everything. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you. This this verse speaks to you. How then should you respond? Well, by crying out to God for the miracle of sight. By crying out to Him that He may open your eyes just like He did the disciples so that you may see him for who he really is, and that he may then change your life like he changed theirs. And my friends, I want to encourage you, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you do cry out to him for this miracle of sight, guess what? He will answer you by performing that miracle of sight on you. He will. Because he is a great and compassionate and loving God. The reason why probably you are here today is because a friend or a family member has brought you, just like what happened to the blind man in Bethsaida this morning. Maybe that's what God wants to do to you today. He wants to break in on your life and open your eyes so that you may see you are the Christ. 
and may in turn then repent of your sin and put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior, which changes your life. Jesus Christ is not a group of doctrines. He's not a group of beliefs. That would never float my boat in a million years. That would not be enough for any one of us to take up our cross and follow Jesus. The reason why we take up our cross and follow Jesus is because we see Jesus. We see this man who is a man who is a king and a God. We see him for who he really is and it changes our lives so that we don't want for anything else. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then I want to encourage you, cry out to God for this miracle of sight and he will answer you. Maybe in a moment or maybe in a period of time, he will open your eyes and that will change everything. If you are a believer, though, which is most of you, I just want to encourage you, you're only here today because the miracle of sight has happened to you. Sometimes you encounter people and they're a bit reluctant to share their testimony because, oh, it's not very good. It's not very good. It's a miracle. It is a miracle. The fact that you can declare Jesus as your Lord, that's a miracle. That's a miracle no different to the blind man of Bethsaida. It's exactly the same. You, you wouldn't have been able to see. You couldn't see. But he broke in on your life. He opened your eyes. And he enabled you to see him for who he really is. It is a miracle. And having responded then and received that miracle of sight, I want to encourage you, would gratitude and humility and faith then be our themes. That's how we respond. With gratitude, with humility, and with faith. Gratitude towards God. Because you were blind. You could not see. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. But now you're not. Why? Because he gave you the miracle of sight. He opened your blind eyes. Just like this man, he put his hands on your eyes and he says, now you can see. And in a moment you saw and you thought, oh, I think I always saw. No, you didn't. You didn't. You were blind. But now you see. J.I. Packer says it this way. He says, to know that from eternity past, my maker... For seeing my sin, for loved me and resolved to save me, though it would be at the cost of Calvary. To know that the divine Son was appointed from eternity to be my Savior. And then in love he became man for me and died for me and now lives to intercede for me and will one day come in person to take me home. To know that the Lord who loved me and gave himself up for me and who came and preached peace to me through his messengers, has by his spirit raised me from spiritual death to life-giving union and communion with himself and has promised to hold me fast and never let me go. For this is knowledge that brings overwhelming gratitude and joy. Oh, my friends, I don't think that's just for Mr. Packer. 
I think that should be the response of every Christian. If you were physically blind and a man came up to you and in a moment opened your eyes, you'd be talking about it and rejoicing about it for the rest of your life. It should be the same as we realize that's what he's done for me spiritually. That's what he's done. He's opened the eyes of my heart that I may be able to perceive him. Outside of that miracle of sight, I never would have seen him. And so I love you. I'm amazed in you because I was blind, but now I see. I didn't do it myself. You did it. So I want to praise you every day of my life. Why? Because I'm grateful. Because without you opening my eyes, I never would have seen. I never would have seen you. Christians should be the most grateful people walking the planet. Sure, sparks fly upwards, troubles fall. True. It's true. We all go through challenges at different times in our life. I get that. But we can always thank God that I was blind, but now I see. I was blind, but now I see. And I've been forgiven of my sin and redeemed and adopted. And I know because I was blind and now I see that heaven is going to be my home because he opened my eyes to be able to respond to him so that heaven could be my home. There's always things to praise God for when we realize I was blind, but now I see. Gratitude towards God should be our theme. Also, humility before God. J.C. Ryle says it this way. He says, without a divine call, no one can be saved. We are all so sunk in our sin and so wedded to the world that we would never turn to God and seek salvation unless he first called our names. God must speak to our hearts by his Spirit else we would never speak to him. My friends, Christians should not only be the most grateful people walking the planet, we should be the most humble. Because if he hadn't opened our eyes, we would have never seen him. So if he hadn't spoken that miracle of sight to our lives first, we would have never spoken to him. Well, in my book, that gives us no cause then of boasting. Because what did you bring to your salvations? What did I bring to my salvation? My sin and my blindness. That's it. I didn't go looking. I didn't go searching. I was blind. And I was a sinner. And yet God in his grace came after this sinner. And opened my eyes. And then gave me the gift of faith so that I could respond to him. What exactly then do we have to boast in? Christians should be the people coming through those doors, shaking their heads, amazed. How did I get here? Out of millions lost, why, why me? How me? How dare we at different times in our lives... Look on at unbelievers and tut. We need to be aware that outside of the miracle of sight on our lives, we would be them. And we didn't change our circumstance. God did. We have nothing to boast about in and of ourselves. We must not walk around as Christians like Pharisees or scribes. We must be humble. Amazed that God saved me. And not then judging the world, but seeking to win the world. And grateful throughout. 
And we should also, I think, exhibit great faith in God. I mean, we've been called on a high and holy calling, have we not? We've been called to a great mission, to go take the gospel to all nations. That is a mammoth task. We've been called to take our baskets to the Savior, allow Him to fill them with bread, and then we go and take them out. We haven't got much to offer in and of ourselves. I mean, look around. I love you all, but look around. This is it. You know what I mean? It's like we're probably not going to be taking the city for Jesus this week. This is it. In and of ourselves, we don't have a lot to offer when it comes to our mission. But here's the good news. Jesus has everything to offer. As we take the bread and we give it out, our confidence is in Him. Our confidence is in the fact that as I give this gospel to another, I know I can't convince them to come in. I know I can't do much for them. I know I can't nice them in. I know I can't care for them in. But here's what I know. As I give out this gospel, if it be God's will, in a moment, He can open their blind eyes and they see Him declare Him as the Christ. That's our hope. That is always our hope. And so we go on mission with faith, realizing it's not me, it's Him. And He wants to save, and He can, in a moment, heal blind eyes. And so, how do we respond as Christians? Well, having received this miracle of sight, we ensure that gratitude and humility and faith are our themes. We're only here, my friends, because at some point in your life, God gave you the miracle of sight. Never forget that. And would all glory then go to him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, our hearts are so prone to wonder. And yet when we pause and consider our salvation stories, each and every one of them point to you, a faithful and kind and compassionate God who opened our eyes. Lord, outside of your saving grace, we still wouldn't see now. We would just be going around blind, maybe have some category for church or Christ or whatever it be, but we wouldn't be following you. We wouldn't believe in you. And yet we do believe in you because you called our names and you didn't just heal the masses. You healed us. You opened my eyes. You opened our eyes. Lord, would we always be staggered then by that truth? And in many ways, Lord, would we never move on from that truth? And would gratitude and humility and faith then be our things. In Jesus' name, amen.